Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We're joined today by CJ Neal, who will be reading from and talking to us about the Money Go Round. CJ, thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. Um, you're welcome. I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, we're just going to dive right in. So where did the idea for the Money Go Round come from? It's actually based on events that I witnessed personally back in 2000, well, between about 2005 and 2008. I worked at the time in corporate finance and law. Um, I have a legal background and I witnessed basically the events that are at the core of this because there was a there was a rather interesting and very elaborate property scam at the heart of it. And that's really what the money go around is about. But I then took those events that include people that I knew and still know well to this day. In fact, I was talking to one of the characters only about an hour ago. Clearly got a very different name in this. I mean, he's a slightly different character, but he knows who he is. And so I, I then embellished all, all of that, but used the basis of what I'd seen to create this story around. But the story is a relatively accurate picture of the scam that went on. It's just that there are other things in the story that um, I didn't witness because they're completely fictional. Wow. So um, even though I said I can only ask three questions, I'm going to cheat a little bit. So you said, you said that so one of the people that you were just talking to was in the book, and so they know about the book. Do other characters know about the book and know that they were in it? No, there's nobody else that's particularly aware of it that I'm aware of anyway, unless any of them have picked it up and read it and thought, that's me, which certainly in, in one case that could happen. One of the characters might be recognisable to the real person that it was created around. But no, there's nobody else that knows. It's just uh, just the one that I've just referred to. That sounds, especially because we know there's a murder, that sounds like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so could we have our first reading, please? Uh, we can. I'm going to start right at the beginning. The first chapter is very, very, very short. So I'll read the first one and then I'll move on to the second one. If that's OK. The Money Go Round, Chapter 1, 11th of February, 2012. It would be over soon. Elizabeth Cecil could not face life any longer. The shame was too much. Her solicitor's practicing certificate lay on the coffee table, torn into little pieces. No more worries, no more stress, no more threats of violence if she spoke out about what had really happened. It was the gin putting her to sleep, but that alone would only leave her with a serious headache the following morning. It always did. Mother's ruin, her grandmother called it. But what would actually kill her was the cocktail of tramadol and naproxen, washed down and mixed with the alcohol. She'd started drinking around six, and by ten o'clock had drunk a full litre bottle and begun attacking another. The tonic had run out some time ago and the ice was reduced to a puddle. She was now sprawled naked across the couch in her tiny Docklands apartment, a very small, soulless space that cost a very large slice of her salary. Her eyelids were getting heavier by the second. She would have made a perfect life model for any 18th century artist, her curvy body soft and plump in all the right places. 
Elizabeth died watching the 10 o'clock news just after it was announced that Whitney Houston had passed away in Los Angeles and that her spirit would live on. By the time she was found, her beauty had hardened, disfigured by rigor mortis, beginning with those eyelids. But she was finally free. Her adoring father could now get on with his life once he got over the inevitable grief. He would be devastated, of course, as he doted on her. But that would pass, and he would forgive her. He always did. If only she'd known that just a few days later, Daddy's life would end in much the same way. His chosen method leaving him slumped in the passenger seat of his BMW, the garden hosepipe feeding carbon monoxide from the engine into his lungs. His reputation as one of the most senior lawyers in England, damaged beyond repair through no fault of his own. Elizabeth's naivety had done for them both. If only she'd known that truth will out. The end of the first chapter. Shall I go on to the? Sure. How about um, I'll ask you another question and then we'll hear from the other one, because that was such a gripping opening. So the story takes us around the world to multiple tax havens and islands. And so I'm really curious about the sort of research you did to bring the settings to life and how important it was or wasn't to create the sense of place that readers could recognize if they've been there. Okay, well, there are two main tax havens that the book actually refers to. One of them is the Cayman Islands, Grand Cayman, and the other is the Isle of Man. I've never been to Grand Cayman, so I had to do some research into the geography, how the land lies, where the airport is, and what hotels there are and what offices they would be meeting in. That was relatively straightforward, and it only relates to one chapter in the novel. The Isle of Man, there's a lot more in the Isle of Man, but I've been to the Isle of Man dozens of times. And I know it reasonably, or at least I know Douglas, which is the main part, pretty well. So I didn't have to do any research for that at all. That came quite easily. And when you're writing place, do you stay, I guess, true to the geography or can you move things around and kind of play and explore and imagine? Which kind of route do you take? Well, I'm not big on geographical description. I don't go in for it an awful lot. I suppose it's fair to say I'm much more plot based. So that really wasn't an issue for me at all, particularly with somewhere like the Isle of Man or or London, where a lot of the action takes place. The places it takes place, I know sort of very well. So um, uh, I'm able to describe them sort of very easily. And I don't like slowing plots down with too much description. You know, I wanted to keep moving really as much as anything. Oh, great. And could we hear more from the book, please? Chapter two, Max, London, January 2013. I hate law courts. The Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand is as busy as ever. People are queuing out of the Gothic arched entrance onto the pavement, all bundled up in winter coats and scarves. I walk in and stretch out my arms as though about to be crucified whilst being patted all over by an overweight security guard. Bad memories. I've hated court since my father surprised me with a visit to one on my 12th birthday because he thought I wanted to be a lawyer just like him. The real surprise was the accused jumping out of the dock and trying to kill us both 
revenge against my father, repayment for advice given but not taken. I've hated these places ever since, but life keeps dragging me back. What am I even doing here? As if I need any more punishment right now. I think of Sandy walking out of the door without so much as a sorry. Seven years of marriage flushed down the toilet in a moment. I know it was on New Year's Eve, but I'm not sure how long ago that was. I've spent the last few weeks in oblivion, totally drenched in booze. Now I'm back here in the place I hate the most, and I probably stink. I can get divorce advice at any time, but I know I'll find Julia Lovell here, and right now I need a friend almost as much as I need work. Every day, almost without fail, she'll be in court until about four o'clock when she walks back to her barrister's chambers at Lincoln's Inn Fields to spend the next few hours writing opinions, meeting clients, and generally arranging what's left of her life, which is not much, she's often told me. I spot her quickly, black gown over a grey two-piece suit, grey curly wig and heels. The heels go everywhere. She's standing with two men, one obviously the solicitor, as he's loaded with files. The other, the client, I imagine, is looking distinctly unhappy. As I pass by her heading for the notice boards, her eyes acknowledge me and she turns away from the group. With a look of apology, she mouths, sorry, really busy. I raise my hand to my mouth and signal back, coffee? Julia checks her watch and holds up three fingers on her left hand. Three o'clock. She points across the road towards the coffee shop. Lawyers have frequented for more years than most can remember. I nod and she turns back to her group. I've now got time on my hands. And as much as I hate them, courts have often been a source of good stories. God knows I need one. I can hardly remember when an editor last paid me for my freelance offerings. This morning saw two more rejections of features and I'm desperate for something interesting. After years on the city desk of a major broadsheet, I'm now without a regular paycheck and merely surviving. It's a struggle to pay all the bills and it's not uncommon for the mortgage to be late. Worse still, it's my own fault. A moment of stupidity cost me everything. I walk over to the listings board where a court usher immediately recognises me. Max Stevens, well, I never. How's life in Fleet Street then? John has worked here for about a 100 years. He knows everything and everybody. And because of his loud Cockney accent, everyone knows John. Just here for a quick word with Miss Lovell, unless there's anything interesting going on. Not today, I'm afraid. Just my luck. Miss Lovell's got to be more interested in anything going on in this place, if you know what I mean. He winks and taps his nose a couple of times. I scan the listings, but they reveal little of interest other than a solicitor's disciplinary tribunal hearing. Why not? These cases often cast light upon the dishonest dealings of what's supposed to be one of the oldest and most honourable professions. I've spent enough time reporting on them to know that some of the people involved can be anything but honourable. With a small degree of hope, I find the court and ease quietly into the chamber, as the hearing is already in session. The late 1800s courtrooms at the RCJ are wooden panels, dark, austere and foreboding. Number 11 is no exception. I sit down in the seats usually occupied by journalists 
and looked directly ahead to the crowded lawyers' benches. Three defendants are sat directly behind their legal teams, separated only by chest-high brass rails, the sort that are easily jumped over, as I recall. Three judges sit raised up to my left, each looking equally ominous. One of the barristers stands up from the front row and addresses the bench. Your Honour, I wonder, as this is not a criminal trial, my client might be allowed to leave the dock to join his legal team on the benches behind me. Senior judge looks over his half-ring glasses. No, Mr Smithson, he may not. This may be a tribunal hearing at this stage, but the offences committed here are extremely serious and it's not beyond progression to a much higher court. As this is a sentencing hearing, I believe it's only right that all three defendants remain where they are in the dock. His two colleagues not in agreement. The barrister acknowledges the judge, sits down and turns to the solicitors behind, shrugging his shoulders as if to say, I tried. There's a bald-headed man sitting in front of me, but I know he isn't a hack by the way he's taking down notes. Short and stocky, his nose doesn't appear to be the same shape it was at birth, and he has large, chunky hands and fingers, clearly not made for holding writing implements. He turns around and inspects me, and I give a half-hearted smile. I'm surprised to see anyone else listening to this case, as it's not one that might attract the attention of the general public. The Law Society regularly punishes members who offend, but tell the story only to their own kind. This is a private affair between a governor and its subjects. Why tell the whole world that your members are corrupt? Baldy is here for a reason. Ooh. So which character was the most fun or interesting to write and why? I think it's probably got to be the main antagonist in this, the bad guy, who is Greg Randall. I think he's probably the most fun to write. I think he's arguably even more captivating than the main character to some degree. So I think it'd have to be him. Oh, wow. So what do you think makes him more captivating? Or And he's the one that you were most captivated by as well as the writer. Firstly, what makes him more captivating? Well, he's a bad guy. So everything he does is wrong. Whereas the main character is clearly a good guy and he's trying to do everything right. It's just that he's got a bit of a screwed up life and is getting drunk a bit too often. The other guy, as revealed in the novel, he gets up to all sorts of naughtiness that he shouldn't do. So uh, he was probably quite interesting to write, I think. Oh, wow. Um, I love that because I do quite like a good villain sometimes. You just want to, I don't know, see a villain who just enjoys being bad for, you know, whatever reason and just follow what they do and how they do it. And the why behind it can sometimes reveal even more interesting and complex things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, this is based on somebody I knew. So a lot of what is in there actually happened without giving too much away. There is a scene where he goes into, with somebody else, a Middle Eastern restaurant in West London very late one night. And they've already been drinking very, very heavily. And his food comes and he basically falls asleep with his head into the plate. I witnessed that. 
what I think is really incredible too is that idea of of witnessing it and and living it, and then also like writing about it and fictionalizing it. I think it's it's quite compelling. And so, of course, like I'm really curious about what you fictionalize and what you don't, and where that line is, and kind of how you navigate that. I think what I certainly what I did with this and what I'll do with the next books, which are also based on things I've witnessed, is that you can take the plot of what happened and you can more or less use that to some degree as it was. But, I mean, clearly we've just read from the first chapter where someone's committed suicide. That didn't happen in the, in the real situation that I witnessed. Excuse me, what really happened was that that particular character had a breakdown in the real situation and left the profession. So I've just taken that and embellished it to become the suicide as it was. But then I've stuck with the plot. But everything that happens around the plot is probably 90% fictionalised. There are some things. I mean, there's a scene in a bar. Well, it's not a bar, really. It's, It's a very fancy club in Mayfair where these guys gather and get drunk. I've been in there. You know, with these guys, and then there's a what is probably my favourite restaurant in Mayfair that is in the book, and the the maitre d is named for who he is. He's definitely in the book, if only because he always remembers to bring me the same bottle of wine that I want. So I think it's about taking the I think the snippets and then adding to them and bringing them alive and making making the whole thing more colourful. Wonderful. Could we have a, our final reading, please? Yeah, I'm going to go on to chapter four, because this is the beginning of the bad guys. So, chapter four, Randall, 2007. Greg Randall quietly surveyed the busy room with increasing satisfaction. Grosvenor House on London's Park Lane wasn't chosen only for its central location, but also its grandeur and credibility. He tried other cities and venues, but none came close to what London consistently produced. He already knew the numbers, the past evidenced them well. He'd personally invited over 100 people to come and share in the secrets of his success, of how he'd gone from virtual bankruptcy to a lavish lifestyle owning hundreds of properties. It was the invitation to come and join the Millionaires Club and a third of all those attending would ultimately sign on the dotted line. Standing in the margins, Randall scanned the room for telltale buyer signs. After nearly three years, he could spot them easily. The twitchy, excitable wife or eager boyfriend desperate to impress, even the spies, but then they were easy to see. He also watched his team. Each one was busy chatting to a potential new club member, knowing they were worth five grand to their boss and 500 quid to them. As people scrambled to get onto the buy-to-let property ladder, Randall had repeated the same event three times every month for the last few years. Each one earned him around 150 grand after expenses. That was just pocket money. The real money will be made later. At precisely 10.25am, the hype began. 
Eye of the Tiger theme from an old Rocky film was suddenly blasted out from speakers around the room. It was loud and powerful and accompanied by flashing images of smart properties and beautiful people. It was also Randall's cue to take his spot and get ready to give the same old presentation. Why change a winning format? Everything was perfectly choreographed and the noise was silenced promptly at 10.30. The stage was taken over by a minor television celebrity known for presenting a popular property show. With success dripping from every limb, she could have appeared in the earlier opening shots. Welcoming the assembled guests, she went on to extol her belief that property was undoubtedly the best investment they could ever make and their host would show them how it was possible for anyone. Greg Randall knew his audience, largely millennials. They were more relaxed than their parents and much less interested in customs and traditions and the clothes someone wore. He'd also learned that the rich don't give a toss about whether you're in a Savile Row suit or blue jeans, just as long as you've got the cash. Randall was a jeans man, which only served to accentuate his six foot two inch stature. His shirt was unbuttoned, one more hole than might be considered appropriate, and his golden locks hung around his shoulders. He also could have been in the opening images. He spent the next hour regaling his guests with details of how he came back from the brink of disaster and bankruptcy, had a portfolio of around 500 properties, all let out to paying tenants, lived in one of the smartest parts of London and had a villa on the Côte d'Azur where he spent his weekends. All this in just a few years from buy-to-let property. If he could do it, so could they, he told them. At the end of his presentation, rapturous applause was started by his team and followed by the audience. Randall then pointed out each team member, identifying all of them by their first names to shout of hi and hello, resembling game show contestants. They were there to help the audience make that first move towards successful property investment, he said. And if in doubt, there's also a solicitor on hand. Randall introduced Elizabeth Cecil much more formally an Oxford graduate, member of an eminent legal family, and now heading up the independent law firm Cecil Law. Whatever they needed to know, Elizabeth was there to help. Randall moved away from the podium and watched as people drifted, mulled around, or made a beeline to one of his team. As always, some headed directly towards Randall, wanting just to get close to see if some of the magic would rub off on them. Others had genuine questions, that he would answer with ease before handing them over surreptitiously to the team. Randall's job was to inspire, not to close these people. His people had been well trained to do that. There was, however, one encounter which intrigued him. She walked slowly towards him and he was struck by how drab she looked. The grey, monotonous clothing and Beatles-style haircut dyed black, its grey roots shining through. There was no blending in with the background of the crowd of would-be go-getters and Randall couldn't help but smile at her. What on earth are you doing here, he thought. She introduced herself to Randall as Marjorie Short and fired off one simple question, a question Randall had been asked a thousand times. That's an easy one, Marjorie. History and facts speak for themselves. and No one is building any more land and so property will always be a safe bet. 
Randall continued to regale her with the same information that made up his presentation, but was regurgitated into different formats until she was bleary-eyed and eventually led away by one of Randall's closers. A buffet lunch was served at 12.30, time to ensure those who might be thinking of leaving didn't. A free lunch would always hold a crowd. Champagne was also provided to toast the new club members and oil those tighter wallets. By 3.30, everyone had left, and the one-third prediction realised it was this consistency which had made the property investment group the biggest buy-to-let business in the country. Randall's marketing team had come up with a pig as an emblem for the company. With no obvious connection to property, they explained that everyone recognised the piggy bank, particularly if it had lots of money going into it. The property investment group was the best savings scheme anyone could have. The more properties they bought from Randall, the more cash flowed into the bank. Each piece of the group's marketing material depicted a pink pig being filled with an endless flow of cash. Anyone remotely interested in property investment recognised the pink pig and believed that the property investment group was an odds-on winner. That's it. Job done, Randall thought, as he strolled back to his office around the corner on St James Street. With the early autumnal sun beating down nicely, he was mindful that it hadn't always been easy and recalled his abrupt departure from Australia. The weeks before he arrived at Heathrow in 2004 had left him exhausted. He'd fought firstly with liquidators over the construction business he'd spent 10 years building up in Sydney, and then his wife about the fallout. In the end, he'd given up and walked away from both. The business could be replicated anywhere around the world, and Terry would be fine, he thought. She would soon find another arm to adorn. Hell, he hadn't exactly been the first. And even though he knew he'd stripped her of just about all her cash, at the same time as squirrelling away as much as he could from the business he knew was dying, he was confident she would soon find another banker. His long legs and purposeful stride returned him quickly back to a quiet office, with most of his team still packing up the event. He enjoyed the lack of noise as much as he did the rapid fire of the day-to-day engagements. Most of the day, telephones were constantly ringing and multiple conversations with clients reverberated around the office. Moments like this were rare and he indulged in a moment of pride as he gazed around his kingdom. The basement of Capsian House was large enough to house about 30 people. It also had a couple of small but adequate private offices and was well equipped with furniture and telephones linked into the main ground floor reception. The moment he first walked in, Randall loved it. He could already see his empire rising from within these walls, could hear the phones buzzing and salesmen engaging clients with persuasive stories to entice them to invest. He could envisage it all. The place would come alive. He would make it all happen. And best of all, it was in the heart of Mayfair one of the most prestigious addresses in the city. It even had underground parking. Perfect, he thought. His initial tour of the office was facilitated by a young woman, a girl, Randall thought. As he followed her around the building, he was impressed by her shapeliness, accentuated by a trim-fitting two-piece suit. Everything about her was polished, including her bright red nails. Almost perfect, 
even though she clearly wasn't a natural blonde, he noted. And she talked about the array of facilities the office and building offered and generally did her best to sell the place to him. Randall was already imagining her in his bed later that night. How quickly can we move in, Randall asked. It's available immediately, but there is another party interested. It's really a question of who completes the paperwork and pays the initial rent. Okay, let's do it right now. And you, you come with the office right, Randall said. She blushed and Randall was quick to spot the opportunity. You must have dinner with me to celebrate. I won't take no for an answer. His laddish charm easily won her over. Later that night, his imagination was replayed. Once against her initial protests, he soon enticed her into his bed and used her fully. In the weeks to come, he would use her again, sometimes in his office when everyone else had left for the day. Randall knew it wouldn't last, but for now she was keen. It only took a phone call or a text, and she'd be there whatever time of the day or night. Within just a few weeks, she'd started a new job on the other side of London, and Randall's habitual use of her ceased. It didn't matter, as he already had two others in tow. He was interrupted by the return of his jubilant team. Targets reached, bonuses banked and spent. The decibel levels ramped up as normality was restored. It was already gone five o'clock, but as phone diverts were switched off, calls came flowing in, and as Randall knew that, the team would be hard at it for another two or three hours. They were hungry for cash, and the pig would reward them. Whilst the team continued to make money for him, Randall left to meet one of the people who'd helped him to make all this happen. If he had a brother, it could have been Smithy. Wow. So where can we buy the money go round? It's only available on Amazon at the moment. CJ Neil, and that's Neil N E I L, and the money go round will find it on Amazon, or people can go to the website, which is just cjneil.com. And that will take them straight to Amazon as well. Wonderful. So thank you so much for being my guest and for reading and talking to us about the book. You're very welcome. And uh, I've enjoyed it. Thank you.